This is the 150th episode of Mountain Meister. 150 people who are redefining what is humanly possible. This redefining happens in the highest, most remote places on the face of this earth, which begs the question, who is there to witness it? Who keeps track of all of this stuff? If they summited, when did they summit? Who summited and with Sherpas, without Sherpas? How much rope did they fix? They use supplemental oxygen. If they didn't summit, why didn't they summit? They have a team, like the big commercial teams sometimes have 20 people. And if they say it happened, it happened, right? Has anybody ever lied to you in one of these interviews? Oh, yeah. This episode of Mountain Meister is sponsored by Cloudline Socks, a company that has created a top-secret merino wool blend that simulates the experience of walking on the clouds. For 20% off of these made-in-America beauties, go to cloudlineapparel.com and use the code MEISTER at checkout. Thanks. On to the show. Hi there. Welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. On the other end, we have Billy Beerling, who's a mountaineer journalist and assistant for Miss Elizabeth Hawley, the legendary chronicler of Himalayan expeditions. Billy is the first German woman to reach the tops of Lotse and Manaslu. In 2011, she summited Manaslu again, this time without oxygen. Billy Beerling, welcome to Mountain Meister. Thank you very much. Hello. Hello. Congratulations on all of those summits, but maybe what's not talked about enough is the are the climbs when this one doesn't reach the summit. You just returned from Broad Peak, correct? Yes. Um, I've been back for about a couple of weeks, yeah. And how'd that go? Well, Broad Peak was an amazing experience, but we didn't summit. But, you know, I don't go to these mountains to summit because – you know, I mean, with high, with, with so many things in life, but especially high altitude mountaineering, I mean, there are so many factors that have to be right. You know, your health and the weather and the conditions and, you know, the team spirit, the, the Sherpas in my case, because I do climb with Sherpas. So I normally, you know, for me to get to the summit, it's a bonus, hmm. you know, and, and, um, Broad Peak was, you know, it was a, a big challenge. It was the first time I climbed in Pakistan. I mean, I used to live in Pakistan. I was saying Islamabad for two years, working for the United Nations, but that's a different story. So I was actually quite excited to go and climb an 8,000-meter peak in Pakistan. I like that perspective. The summit's an added bonus. Yeah, it, it is. Because, I mean, I have been lucky. I have climbed, I mean... Yes, I mean, Everest was, a, I got up the first time and, and, uh, and Manaslu, I got up twice and Makalu took me twice, two times. So, I mean, I have been lucky. There have been people, you know, there are people who've been to Mount Everest 10 times, you know, they try again and again. So I have been very lucky. But with Pakistan, it's a, just a different ball game. You know, if people have climbed in the Nepal Himalaya and the Karakoram, they'll probably tell you the same. It's a lot rougher. The, the walk-in is tougher, you know. Mm. The food, you know, on Everest Base Camp or now on Makalu, the commercial expeditions have amazing food. I mean, just on that expedition on Broad Peak, I'm a vegetarian and I lived off rice and lentils and vegetables for six mm. weeks. So, you know, that... But it was fine. We had food, you know. Yeah. Right. Um, but, of course, you know, there's a lot of challenges. But 
I was, um, I felt strong during the expedition, um, but the weather was just too good, which is a very strange thing mm. to say. And we would look up to the summit every day and we'd think, God, yet another summit day because it was calm, it was sunny, it was beautiful, but it was hot. And that really changed the conditions on the mountain. Within those five or six weeks, we were there. So it was just the weather was perfect. My fitness level, my strength was fine, but the conditions on the mountains were just too dangerous. So it was too hot. So, so what what is your summit percentage? You you chronicle Himalayan expeditions. Do you have a summit percentage of the number of peaks that you go to? Uh, now, for myself, yes. Thank God, I'd have to work that out. Oh, I you have, I'm so, very very bad at maths. I'm calling myself a linguist, so I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> so you but don't I have it for that. yourself, but what about for the average? Well, the average, I mean, you know, different, you know, I mean, K2 has a percentage maybe of, you know, 20%, whereas uh, Mount Everest is probably now to the tunes of uh, 70% of mm. the you know, of the people who go there who summit. So, I mean, it, it depends on, on, on the mountain, of course, you know, which mountain you're attempting. And, and yeah, so the, the, the summit success on Everest is pretty high now because it's, it's a, you know, it's a motorway, the infrastructure is there. Again, in the Karakoram, different ball game. You know, we took Sherpas, we took Nepali Sherpas with us. But of course, they didn't know the mountain either and they weren't used to the conditions there. So I think it was a really challenging trip for all of us. I I went with a big commercial expedition of uh, 15 clients. Most of them were actually headed for K2, but I was focusing on Broad Peak. Are are there any mountains that have a decreasing summit percentage year over year? Yeah, there are, of course. You know, I mean, maybe not the famous ones, you know, there's, for example, Pomori, beautiful 7,000 meter peak opposite Mount Everest. And, and it's just become too dangerous over the years, you know, whether it's global warming, whether it's, you know, because, you know, there's just too much avalanche danger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Annapurna, I mean, Annapurna one, it's the 10th highest in the world. Uh, it's, it's a very dangerous mountain. I don't, I wouldn't know the percentage of, of, uh, successful climbs there, but a lot of, um, people when they come back from Annapurna, you know, they, they, they're tra- almost traumatized because it's a very dangerous mountain. So. Yeah, yeah. so I don't have any statistics on this, uh, but it seems like mountaineering is generally a male dominated sport. Can you confirm that that's true first? I could definitely confirm that. Okay. I mean, if you- <laughs> You know, very quickly, I mean, if you look at Mount Everest, for example, now 4,000 different people have summited Mount Everest. Now, and out of these 4,000 people, we have, hold on, I have to look, we have 418 women. So 10%. It's 10%. And I would have thought that, you know, more more women are now going to Everest than, than 10 or 15 years ago. But, you know, if I look now at my Broad Peak expedition, we were, you know, at base camp in my team, there were 15 people, were two women. And I think overall on, on the base camp, they were maybe around 100 people. And I would have thought that there were maybe eight or nine women. So, yes, it is still very male dominated. But 
it's great that more and more women are doing it. And I love it when I go on an expedition and there is another woman. It's yeah. sometimes quite tough to be the only woman because you have to listen to all that male talk. And, you know, sometimes it's funny, but, you know, you want to have some girls talk every once in a while. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> so why, why is it like that? I don't know. I really don't know why not more women go climbing. And as I say, I mean, the numbers have certainly increased. But look at me. I mean, I am i was only the third German woman to climb Mount Everest, the first German woman to climb Lotse, the first German woman to climb Manaslu. And together with another German woman, Heidi Sand, we were the first two German women to summit Makalu. So, and I'm not a fantastic climber you know I would call myself you know I'm it's 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 a hobby of mine um so but you know what's wrong with the German women I don't know I you know there's only one woman in Germany who has more 8,000 meter peaks than I have and I only have four um yeah and then you have of course you have uh women female mountaineers like Gelinde Kaltenbrunner who's Austrian who who became the only or the only woman to have climbed all 14 8,000 meter peaks without Sherpas and supplementary ox- oxygen. So there are women, you know, who, who, you know, are an example. But And I know a very good friend of mine, she's Iranian, an Iranian woman, and she's climbed three 8,000 meter peaks. So, you know, they're out there. But maybe it's, you know, maybe at one point, and I've seen many women come to Nepal in their late 20s, early 30s, and then at one point... They stopped coming back and, yeah, I heard, well, they got married and had children. So, you know, it's and, – and that comes in. But then, you know, some women carry on doing that. I have just met uh, Hilary O'Neill, mm-hmm. who's from the States, um, and she's a North Face athlete. She's an extreme skier. And she came here to climb Makalu with her two kids and her husband who are going to go to base camp with her, which I think is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I for some reason didn't even think of the the caretaking part of it because I guess when the average age of a mountaineer, uh, people don't really start mountaineering at least in the Himalaya it seems at a young age. So maybe by the time that age rolls around, they already have kids. Very true, very true. And part of the reason for that is uh, is the high cost of climbing yes, in the Himalayas. Exactly. It's, it's expensive. So, you know, I mean, there are some young guys, you know, and, the, you know, we had like a young Indian woman, you know, but they, they get sponsored. So there are very few and far between. But I do hope uh, that, you know, the, the percentage of women will continue to increase. And I... You know, I'm planning to do a women's expedition maybe next year in Pakistan to the highest mountain in the Hindu Kush, which is called Tirichmir. And, you know, just go with a few women, maybe also take some Pakistani women to trek to base camp for them to give them the opportunity to see their beautiful country. So, you know, let's let's see. But uh, it'll I think it'll remain a very male-dominated sport for yeah. quite some time. And yeah. I should say that, I mean... I just made a huge assumption that the women have to be the caretakers, but that's only the case in maybe, what, a year of a child's life. Come on, men, we got to step it up, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And But it's really interesting. Um, women, of course, get more criticized. I mean, there was this British mountaineer, Elizabeth Hargreaves, who died on K2 in 1996, mm. and she had two small children. Now, she got so heavily criticized, but I see so many men who have women at home who've just given birth. Mm -hmm. Um, We had, for example, a guy on our expedition 
who's had a four-week-old baby at home. I mean, he didn't last very long. He went home after three weeks because, um, you know, he mentally it wasn't, mm. you know, it didn't work out because, you know, when you climb a big mountain, you've got to concentrate on the mountain. And, of course, he was with his thoughts, with his family. But, yeah, and, you know, I mean, a woman could do that, you know, physically because, you know, they've got to be with a baby. But, um, but yeah, I think there's still more criticism for women to leave their kids at home than uh, with men. Yeah, good point. So I also, to, to switch topics a little bit, uh, we talked about climbing without oxygen, and I've just been so curious to talk to somebody about this. Uh, you did Manaslu, right? Yeah. So, so first oh. of all, what does it feel like? You know, and I have a very good comparison because I climbed the mountain right. twice, with supplemental oxygen and once without it. Now, what is it like? Oh, it's a much nicer. I hate the oxygen mask. Part of the reason is because I can't talk when I have the oxygen mask in front of my mouth. Um, and also, it's I find it very restricting. And, you know, you put this oxygen mask on, and of course, it helps you breathe. But for me, you know, I, I almost felt sort of claustrophobic with it. And I remember when I climbed Everest, I was, you know, I hated that mask. But, of course, I needed oxygen on Everest. Um, and then I've always, you know, been very envious of these people who climb these big mountains without oxygen. And I just wanted to try it. And, of course, you know, I mean, there, there is a very split, you know, um, there are very split groups about supplemental oxygen with or without, you know, whether you should use it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the purists say, you know, if you climb Everest with supplemental oxygen, you've only climbed a six and a half thousand meter peak, which is true because, you know, the oxygen, the supplemental oxygen just drops the altitude. Right. Um, so when you go and climb a mountain without supplemental oxygen, it just feels so much purer. And I and, you know, I've climbed Everest and I'm not particularly proud of it, but I'm proud that I climbed the eighth highest mountain in the world without oxygen. Huh. And it's just as I say, it's it's more pure and you're just more in tune with your environment. You know, you're not sort of hidden behind that mask and, you know, it's sort of um, and it wasn't, you know, I mean, I suppose we always forget what was really hard and horrible. And But, you know, if I, of course, it's a lot harder to climb without or supplemental oxygen. You know, it took me four hours more than my colleagues who were using oxygen. But, you know, from the physical side, I i mean, I was knackered when I climbed it with supplemental oxygen. I was absolutely knackered when I climbed without it. Mm-hmm. But it's purer. So, so when you're on the mountain on your way up, do you have the option to put the oxygen mask on and you just don't do it? Or do you head up the mountain without any option except summiting without oxygen or at least proceeding without oxygen? Okay, very good question. Again, there is two groups. You know, there are these people who just climb the mountain without oxygen. They don't even take medical oxygen, which I think is a little bit, uh, you know, irresponsible because uh, oxygen can save your life. But, you know, they these people who go without oxygen but take medical oxygen, they leave it down at the, at the last camp, at high camp. Um and, of course, yeah, you also have to make the decision 
beforehand because you acclimatize more differently Mm -hmm. when you climb with supplemental oxygen you probably only stay a couple of nights at camp two whereas if you climb without oxygen then you have to go one camp higher and have at least one or two nights there because you have to adapt your body much better and in my case I, because I was going with a commercial operator and everybody else was using oxygen and I said, I don't want to use oxygen. So, I mean, I cheated a little bit because I had a shepherd with me who carried oxygen for me. So I wouldn't call that cheating, Billy. <laughs> well, a purist, a complete purist, and I almost agree with them. So, well, that's not quite, you know, they go without O's. I mean, for me, I did it physically. I did, you know, because... If you breathe one sip of oxygen or one breath of oxygen, that will mess up your oxygen less ascent, Mm. you know. So if you summited Mount Manaslu without oxygen, but on the way down to base camp you fall ill and somebody gives you oxygen, then in the database that you mentioned before, Mm you would not get an oxygen less ascent. Even if you were only on oxygen at camp one, even down at base camp, you used oxygen. Right, but you also survived, which I think is a little more You also survived, absolutely. And I was absolutely, I'm not one of these purists. Of course I'm not, because otherwise I wouldn't have climbed these other mountains Mm -hmm. with supplemental oxygen. But, but, there is a big but, my plan is, because I want to climb like three or four more 8,000 meter peaks, but the smaller ones... And on those, I just don't want to use supplemental oxygen. Hmm. So maybe you can help me out with this too, just because I like to play devil's advocate. Uh, (laughs) The purists also say that this is a very natural way, that maybe the only natural way to really climb a mountain. But at the same time, they're also using machine-manufactured ice axes, carabiners, probably synthetic fabrics, all of this stuff that really isn't natural mm-hmm. isn't isn't that contradictory i don't i think that's a little bit far is that a stretch fetch. okay i think that is but i give you a better example yes if i look at all the drugs people are taking mm. at base camp i always say you know the anti-doping commission would have a field day at base camp <laughs> um and also some of the people who climb without supplemental oxygen Take on their summit te- day dexamethasone, which is a very strong adrenaline drug, which is normally used for if you get into trouble and you get high altitude cerebral edema, mm-hmm. you would take that. Now, some of the guys, you know, and I, you know, I, I don't know who, but I've heard that people do that. So, yes, there is. I mean, I think there you can really say, right, they don't use supplemental oxygen but the amount of drugs they're using. But, of course, there is no anti-doping commission or, you know. Mm. But uh, Hans Kammerlander, quite a famous Italian mountaineer, once said, climbing Everest with supplemental oxygen is like doing the Tour de France on a motorbike. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know. So, yeah, there is. I mean, it's a very strong, you have the purists. It's a very, very strong opinions. And, uh yeah, and sometimes I'm almost embarrassed to say, oh, I climbed Makalu, the fifth highest, um, with supplemental oxygen. Um, because I'd love to without it. But Makalu, the fifth highest, I wanted to go without O's and I got to camp three. And I thought, I'm just not strong enough. So I have to admit that to myself. And do I want to go home? 
Yeah, well, no, I think, you know, I go to the summit, but then I use the oxygen because I'm already here and I'm so glad I did because it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not a purist. This is fun. Uh, so you interview mountaineers with Miss Elizabeth Holly, who's a kind of this legendary climbing chronicler of Himalayan mountains. Can you kind of just describe who she is and, and what you do? Okay, I'll try and be short. (laughs) Miss Elizabeth Hawley is just about to turn 92 years. She came to Nepal in the 60s when the first American expedition went to Mount Everest in 1963. And she followed it as a Reuters journalist. And, of course, it was a big story. And she stayed here and she made it her hobby, or you may call it her life's vocation now, to collect data of all the expeditions to all the so-called expedition peaks in Nepal. So when she first started in 1963, there was one expedition. Fine. Now, one Everest expedition. Now, in the spring, we have about 100. So it's, you know, it's changed so much. And the amount of work is just crazy. And and so Miss Hawley now with 92 years, um, she still interviews teams and we interview them to find out when did they, well, if they summited, when did they summit and who summited and with Sherpas, without Sherpas, how many ropes, how much rope did they fix, did they use supplemental oxygen? If they didn't summit, why didn't they summit? And if I have a team, like the big commercial team, sometimes have 20 people. So now maybe five people may have summited and then two people may have got to camp one and three people may have got to camp two. And I have to write down everything about every single person, including the Sherpas, so, and if you want to know from me, and, you know, I can tell you because it's now digitalized, um, how many Americans have summited Mount Manaslu, I can tell you within a couple of seconds, you wow. know, if you want to know how many Americans have died on Mount Everest, I mean, all sorts of things, you know, I can, it's, it was digitalized in 2004, but if you go to Miss Hawley's house, it's still everything on paper. I still, at this day and age, I'm still working with paper. So she has everything, but she's amazing. You know, she's like one of these computers. If you walk in and say, ah, I need an information about that American expedition to Pomori in 1985, you know, it'll probably take her five minutes rather than five seconds, but she'll find the form. And she'll say, oh, what's the leader so-and-so? And And yeah, there you have it. So, and I have been working for her for 11 years. And basically during climbing season in Nepal, we only do the Nepal, Nepalese mountains. So whatever happens in Pakistan or Tibet with the 8,000 meter peak doesn't interest us. I run around and track down the mountaineers and um, hopefully find them and interview them before they go on expedition and when they come back. It's a lot of work. That's incredible. And also, we should say that Miss Holly is not a climber herself, correct? Absolutely. Miss Holly has never worn a pair of pair of crampons, and she thinks we're all crazy. And that's actually been a bit bone of contention between Miss Holly and I, because Miss Holly wants me in Kathmandu, because her work is in Kathmandu. So when I told her I was going to go and climb Everest, I mean, she... <laughs> She literally threw her keyboard at me because she was so upset. She can be quite um, temperamental. And, um, and yeah, she was so upset because climbing Everest took me away 
from Kathmandu for seven weeks. But I said, Miss Hawley, I'm not going fly fishing in Fiji or whatever. I'm going to Everest. So, you know, of course, I found a lot of teams on Everest and I did the interviews there. It's a business um, trip. It was almost a business trip and Miss Woolley was not happy. But now we found, because she thinks all these mountaineers are crazy and she thinks I'm crazy and, and she just says, oh, I wish you, you know, you just stayed in Kathmandu. But I said, Miss Woolley, for me, goes hand in hand. I'm helping you because of my interest and my love for the mountains. Right. Whereas Miss Woolley, she's a historian, you know? So she loves to know all the ins and outs and the details for me, the greatest thing is to interview the people, to meet them. And, you know, I've been doing it for 11 years. And, you know, we have, you know, there are some mountaineers who come twice a year. And I know them and I meet them, you know, in Kathmandu or when I'm on the mountain. You know, on Broad Peak, for example, I think I knew about 95% of wow. the people coming. Now, everybody always thinks I'm slow. And I don't think I'm that slow. I just don't get anywhere because I bump into people and have to talk to them. So, um, so that's why I love doing it. And I know, I know so many people and also I have great access to people as a journalist. So when, when a big story breaks, like Uli Steck and Simone Moro, you know, there was this big fight in 2013 between Shepherds and, and three mountaineers on Everest. And Uli wasn't giving an interview to anyone, but I know him quite well. And I was at base camp and I walked up to him and he said, yeah, Billy, I'll give you an interview. So it's even though I don't get paid for the work I do for Miss Hawley, it's a job of love and passion, but it's also opened me many doors. And I love it. Absolutely. And I love her. She's great. That's <laughs> so cool. Um, has anybody ever lied to you in one of these interviews? Oh, yeah. Really? Right. I mean, yeah, but now there's this big but. I don't do these interviews anticipating that people lie to me. So now if I do an interview with you, you've just come back from Annapurna. Wow. And you tell me, yeah, I, yeah, I took the difficult did, one. Did I make it? <laughs> uh, you made it. Well, I, I tell you I make it. <laughs> and you know what? You're a nice guy, and I believe you, because I – and call me naive, but in life, I think there are more honest people or more good people than bad people, or maybe the people I'm surrounded with. And I don't, I can't go around thinking people are lying because it's, you know, and Miss Hawley doesn't, it's a trust and we're not a judge. Now, there are people out there who say, oh, if Miss Hawley doesn't believe you, you haven't summited the mountain. No, I take your report and I take it down, and if you tell me that you summit it, I believe you. I may look at your picture, but often I don't have time to look at your picture. Okay, I'm happy with what you tell me. And now I get a phone call the next day from whatever, Ben Johnson, who says, hey, did Ben Cheng say he summited? I say, yeah, he did. He said, oh, Billy, I'm not sure. I saw him near the summit. He was on his way up. He was absolutely knackered and and." So then I go back to you and you still tell me, nobody, I summited. And, you know, I don't have a photo because my camera froze. Um, and then somebody else tells me, oh, I don't know about binging. Anyway, I could go on and on about it. But if you insist that you summit it, you will get the summit and our database. Hmm. But you will get a disputed. 
So there are some, you know, if you go into our database, I mean, you will see a few disputed. So the, the, like an uh, asterisk almost. Yes, exactly. And and then we have, you know, if if the, the people who dispute your climb, because how can I judge? I haven't been to the summit of Annapurna. And I, maybe I know a few photos, but, you know, Miss Hawley has never been near a mountain, but, but she's very good. I mean, you know, she, she knows she's much better than I am. She knows what it looks like and so on and so forth. But how can we judge? We can just take your word. So, um, but yeah, people have lied to me and I, you know, and I know sometimes that they lie to me. They still lie to me, but, you know, what to do? I mean, at the end of the day, they have to live with their conscience mm-hmm. and who cares? Very good. Uh, I, you know, I was thinking, just hearing you talk about this, how fun it would be to have one of these interviews as a, a Mountain Meister episode. Absolutely. That would be fun. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Future yeah. episode. So so you said you live in Kathmandu. Um, what, what is the state of Kathmandu now a few months after uh, the earthquake? How's the rebuilding going? The rebuilding, you know, Kathmandu itself... And it may, you know, because you saw the pictures on television and I saw, I mean, it was, it was actually weird because for 11 years, I have always, always been either in Kathmandu or at Everest Base Camp on that day, 25th of April. This year, I had left Kathmandu two days, two days earlier to go back to Europe because it was supposed wow. to attend the wedding of a very good friend of mine. So I missed the earthquake. And, of course, I was back in Germany and I saw these pictures and I was going crazy. I, the first person I rang was Miss Hawley. And I said, Miss Hawley, are you okay? And she said, I'm fine, but the earth is shaking. I said, okay, okay, where are you? Well, I'm at my table. And then I said, maybe you should go underneath the table. <laughs> you know, that's what you do. And she said, there is no space. All my staff is underneath the table and I'm fine, so don't worry about me. <laughs> so Miss Hawley was fine. Anyway, I came back to Kathmandu within 24 hours, not as a private person, but I sometimes work for Swiss humanitarian aid. And now every country, you know, sent their rapid response teams to Kathmandu. And the Swiss who I work for rang me up. And, of course, they know Billy knows Nepal. And so I was back here within 24 hours. And I quickly went home and I got my bicycle. And I was cycling through Kathmandu. And I just thought, wow. If I didn't know that there was an earthquake, I wouldn't have seen it. Wow. Because, yeah, but, you know, there's a big but. I'm not, I'm not playing it down. I mean, there has been a lot of damage. But Kathmandu is very chaotic at the best of times. And also the, the pictures they showed on television, you know, they were, it was a weird earthquake. You know, it came in waves. And, you know, some areas of Kathmandu completely unharmed. And then others, especially the brick buildings, were completely destroyed. And, of course, you know, media and, you know, I'm a journalist, you're a journalist. We look for the, for the you know, the, the destruction. And Kathmandu itself was not as badly affected as the areas east of Kathmandu, which were, you know, some of the villages 100% destroyed. And they haven't started rebuilding yet because of the monsoon. There's no point. The people are still living under tarps and sort of makeshift homes. Whereas Kathmandu, a lot of the rebuilding is is being done as we speak. And some of the some of the buildings that are still standing but have structural cracks 
are being taken down. You know, like Bhaktapur, the the UNESCO World Heritage Site, reopened in in June already. So you know there is stuff going on and life. I mean, life was back to normal within I don't know. Well, within within a week, but then the second earthquake mm-hmm. hit, and I think that was for the Nepali um, psyche much worse because people were so scared. And then we had aftershocks and aftershocks and aftershocks, and they still occur. Apparently, there was one a few days ago. Um, but, 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 yeah, I mean, people are now getting more confident again. But you can come as a tourist to Kathmandu. You can go trekking and you know, Tamil is completely open. The bars are open. The restaurants are open. Um, so life is, it feels almost back to normal. But I haven't been to the villages that, near Kathmandu that were completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the media there. Uh, I just find this so interesting. Like the, the definition of the news or something that's noteworthy or newsworthy is that it's out of the ordinary, Right, it's mm. it's a rare event. Yet all we see is the news. So all mm. we see are all these rare events making us think that it's the norm. Uh, and I, I just I think that's a big problem. Absolutely, absolutely. Right? Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. And it's um, it is interesting because now, of course, we're trying to get tourists back to Kathmandu or to Nepal. And I always thought that the 8,000-meter climbers, of course, would come back because, you know, we have seven of the 8,000, or is it eight, seven? You know, we have the 8,000-meter peaks here, so you would come. But, you know, I also see, you know, big sort of cuts in the expeditions that are there. Ah. So um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think this autumn will be a tough season for Nepal, you know, tourism-wise, because, you know, they, they get so much... You know, the tourism is a big contributor to the uh, GDP. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping. But, you know, I, I did an interview today with a tourism expert, and he said something very interesting. He said, Nepal now is very interesting because how often can you witness a country, how it's rebuilding itself? And, of course, you know, you have to go and look for things. But the Nepalis are resilient, and, you know, there are – Carrying on, and yes, they they're slowly rebuilding their houses, and it's a it's a very interesting transition at the moment. Yeah. So, um, yeah, why not come and yeah, rather than bringing humanitarian and development aid, um, come as a tourist, right? Stimulate the economy, win win. Okay. Get to have fun yeah. and pass down the money through the chain, trickle down, yeah. right? Okay. The final question that we have for you is. Who would you like to hear next on Mountain Meister? You know just about all the Mountain Meisters out there. Who do you want to hear? Well, I mentioned her before. Um, It would be Galinda Kaltenbrunner, the Austrian woman who became the only woman on this planet who's climbed all 14, 8,000-meter peaks without the help of supplemental oxygen. Wonderful woman, very um, inspiring, very great integrity and very, very modest about her achievements. Great lady. Keep an ear out for Galinda Kaltenbrunner on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Billy Beerling is a mountaineer, journalist, and chronicler of Himalayan climbing expeditions. You can find out more at billybeerling.com or go to her Meister profile page at our website, mtnmeister.com. We'll have the episode there, some highlights, some links, even a quote from Billy. Thanks so much, Billy. 
You're very welcome and thanks for having me on the show. Meister fans, that was episode 150. 150 down, who knows how many to go. If you'd like to show your support for one or two or 150, you can do so at our support page, mtnmeister.com and or... And or you can write to me, Ben, at mtnmeister.com. Love hearing from everybody. Thank you to those of you who have shown your support financially and just with words of support so far. Really appreciate that. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen to this podcast. Until the next time you hear my voice, I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister.